Excellent. Fantastic. Good on you, Levi. Thanks, Sarah. Please take a seat. And uh, thanks, um, Pastor Chris and Sue, for the invitation to be with you over the course of this weekend. We've had a wonderful time. We always have a wonderful time when we come to Toowoomba. And I have to say, uh, your church has a, has a, a magnificent culture of hospitality and uh, you really know how to look after people and you really know how to look after people well so I want to thank you in particular thank your leaders um, for that have you ever asked God the question why have you ever asked God why did you do that or somebody close to that God why did you allow that to happen Um, if you've ever asked that question that says something about you That says something about me. That says that somewhere in our minds, in our psyche, in our understanding, we think God owes us an explanation. (laughs) God, I want an explanation and I want it now. Now, I think there's a number of reasons why we look at God like this. I'm, I'm toying now with the way we look at God. Uh, I think because we, we, uh, we were born into, if you're born in this country or you're born certainly in the West, you're born into a democracy, right? And in this nation, we don't have sovereign leaders. We have elected officials. And elected officials, we demand, they explain the what behind the why. Or the why behind the what. We want to know why. Uh, if they're going to say, we're going to do this, well, why are you going to do that? If they ask us to do a certain thing, if they ask us to get our phones out as we walk into church tonight and, you know, to um, scan our way in we want to know why and if you can explain why we just might do it but if you can't then we're out and if you start asking us to do too many things without a really good why we're gonna vote you out you're finished and I sometimes wonder (laughs) if we start to look at God a little bit like that it's kind of like God why why did you let this happen God why is this the situation? God, you better explain yourself. And it's kind of like, you know, there's this God and he's a little bit bigger than I am. I get that. You know, I'm, I'm not God. God is bigger and stronger and wiser than I am. But not that much bigger and that much stronger and that much wiser that I don't think he ought to give me an explanation. <laughs> I don't think he ought to explain himself to me i think another one of the reasons why it's not just a democracy in which we're living with freedom of the press and so forth but also the fact that um we are so technologically advanced nowadays right we're, we're about to find the god gene or something so i've heard and uh pretty soon we'll be able to understand the why behind even god also we think uh we've certainly been able to master a whole bunch of diseases and wipe them out we understand dna once upon a time certainly in biblical days if a woman was unable to give birth well it was considered the judgment of god now we know it's a medical condition and we can fix it and so we've come so far once upon a time people would watch a magic show and they'd go oh you know that guy's magic now we watch a trick and we go yeah we saw how we did it we, we know what's going on here uh, we, 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 we want to figure everything out right because we are just so smart <laughs> we're so incredible and I think because we know so much or feel like we know so much you know, um, once upon a time, the whole concept of a man flying was considered to be sort of superhuman. Nowadays, millions of people hop on a plane every day and it doesn't even make the news. Uh, we, we have come so 
far. We control diseases. We can control transportation. We can even control uh, the directions of rivers and, 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 uh, and dams and so forth. We have come so far that we think God now owes us an explanation. We're not living back in the dark ages, right? We're not, we're not an ignorant people. We're an advanced people. We live in liberal democracies and God must understand that's who we are now. So God, give me an explanation whenever I have a question. Here's just a thought for you before uh, we open the word and we, we get into this, the, um, the story tonight. What if God was God? And uh, <laughs> what? Just, just think for a moment, right? Just imagine there is actually a God and he's God and I'm not God. What would there be to suggest that that being owes me an explanation for anything he does or doesn't do. Like, where does this actually come from? Why do we behave or why do we even think in this way? What if it's all about who and not about what? Let me explain this to you. Because, you know, let's just say you're driving, I don't know, say from um, Toowoomba to Dolby. You know, and you're in the, uh, in the middle of the, uh, uh, the sticks there and there's, it's an open road. There's no one around. And all of a sudden you see a speed limit that says 60 kilometers an hour. And you think to yourself, that's rubbish. <laughs> I'm not doing 60 kilometers an hour out here. Because <laughs> you know what you think? You don't think who, you think what? Yeah. It doesn't matter what law there is in the nation. You don't think who, you think what? You think, well, should I do that? Nah, is that fair enough? No. If it doesn't pass muster with me, I am the ultimate arbitrator of what I think I ought to do. So if I'm out there in the middle of the Marlborough on this wide open road and there's no one around that says 60 kilometers an hour, and I've just been doing a 120 and, uh, and I've come to this 60 speed limit, I'm going to go, well, blow that. Why? Why should I do 60? We want an explanation on the side of the road, right? Like, you know, there's a pipeline that's been dug, you know, about 100 yards down the road and I'm going to hit it. Well, then I'm going to go slow, right? If you can tell me why, I may then just obey. But if you can't, I am the arbitrator because in my mind and in your mind, it's not a matter of uh, who says it. It's a matter of what they say. What if... It was a matter of who and not what. Just let that sit in your head for a little bit. As we open the story and we see two cultures collide. We see a man from a pagan culture meet a God culture. It's going to shock you as we look at this in a moment. And as we see these two cultures collide, this man who needs a miracle finds a miracle where he thought the least possible chance that it would be. And the reason I bring this to your attention is because where he found his miracle might just be where you will find yours. Let's have a look at it together. It's uh, stories in Second Kings chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because of him, the Lord had given great victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he had a problem. He had leprosy. 
The Assyrians had gone out on rage and had brought back captives, a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Let me just stop there and explain to you what's going on. Uh, Israel once was a mighty nation. And uh, it had great kings and leaders like, like David and Solomon. But those days are long gone now. And Israel is no longer the superpower of the East that it was under the, uh, the stewardship of David. Uh, and so there are other great powers around. And this, this particular power, the power of Syria, was one of them. And so these other nations, they'll just come in and take what they want and go. They'd come in and raid Israel and they would leave. And, and that's what had happened. And so they'd come and take some servants and some slaves and whatever else they needed. And they'll go back to their, um, to their nation. Naaman was the head honcho. Right? He was a man of great influence and great power that he could actually confide in the king of Syria, one of the great nations on the earth at that time. And uh, uh, it goes on and says, uh, Then she said to her mistress, that's the, that's the servant girl, finds out her master Naaman has leprosy and goes and speaks to Naaman's wife and says, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. That was so incredibly, incredibly courageous. Uh, there was nothing incumbent upon her to do this. There was nothing forcing her. But now she's opened her big mouth, right? Now she's communicated through to her, to, to one of the most powerful men on the planet at that time, uh, that there's an answer to his incurable disease. And so if he follows this through and nothing happens, anyway, <laughs> she's in big trouble. Like, my goodness. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, this is what the girl said. So Naaman goes to the king and says, this is what this girl has said. Then the king of Syria says, now go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And you need to understand that clothing in those days was worth a lot of money because it was handmade, right? They had machines and, and factories and so forth. So clothing had a great dollar value to it. So he's taken silver and gold and clothing and he's gone to the king of Israel. The king of Syria has written a handwritten note to the king of Israel, sent all this money and goods so that his number one guy, they can buy his healing. What happens next? The plot thickens. <laughs> um, he brought the letter in verse 6 to the king of Israel. Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of leprosy. <laughs> this great warrior Naaman rolled into Jerusalem with his entourage and no doubt all the men were saying, saying, hide the women and children. You know, here they come again. Here come the Syrians. You know, take the silverware and put it in a hole somewhere. God only knows what they're going to take, but we know this. They'll take whatever they want. They'll take whomever they want, and there's nothing we can do about it. So fear entered the heart of the inhabitants of Jerusalem as this posse rolls into town. But as verse 7 says, as it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and the tension builds. Am I God, he says, to kill and make alive? That this man sends a man to me to heal him of leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel 
with me. <laughs> the king doesn't have the same level of confidence as the servant girl, quite obviously. Um, and so what he thinks is happening, how the king has interpreted this, the king has thought, okay, they're spoiling for a fight. Syria wants a war. I mean, a war in Israel. Who could believe such a thing, right? I mean, where does that come from? <laughs> I don't know if you watched the news tonight, but this was 2,800 years ago. Some things never change, do they, right? I mean, how remarkable is this? 2,800 years ago, and there is conflict between Israel and its neighbor, Syria. And he thinks, okay, what's happening is that he sent this guy over here to be healed of leprosy. If I can heal of leprosy, I'm not God. This is an incurable disease. Uh, he sent all this money. I won't be able to do anything about it. And he will then retaliate and he'll use this as a catalyst for war. We're doomed. We're all done. The sky is falling. But in verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had tore his clothes. That was big news. The king of Israel was hopeless. He was full of fear uh, that, he, that he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So he has more confidence and more cockiness than the girl, right? The servant girl. He said, yes, yeah, send the bloke to me. Send the critter to me and he'll know that there's a God in Israel. <laughs> so this is what happens. Off he goes, verse 9. And Naaman went with his horse and his chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Elisha lived in the middle of the desert. So this guy, and no doubt all of his entourage, rolled out of Jerusalem and there they're rolling through the countryside of Palestine, of Israel. And no doubt striking fear into the heart of all of the peasants and the workers and the people around, knowing that if he sues you and wants you, he'll just put you in the back of his chariot and keep going. But he pulls out the front of the home in the middle of nowhere where this fellow lives by the name of Elisha. He pulls up and he waits. The door's locked. And he waits. And he waits. And what you need to know, he didn't wait for the king. And here he is now at the palace. He didn't wait. And here he is now in the middle of nowhere, waiting. Like, has Elisha had a heart attack? Why isn't he coming to the door? Doesn't he know who's just pulled up outside? I mean, if the prime minister pulled up at your house, right? Would you finish doing your nails or, you know, make yourself a cup of tea? Just wait, just wait. I'll get there eventually. Like, this is an important guy. This is, a, this is an important guy on an international scale at his door. And is he rushing? Is he hurrying? Is this, is this an urgent matter for Elisha? Nah, not so much. It says this, look at verse 10. This is amazing. It says, Elisha sent a message to him. A messenger. Elisha sends out his servant. He says, yeah, there's this bloke out there, one of the, the captains of Syria, the great nation of Syria, friend of the king. Just go and give him a message for me, will you? Go and tell him to, go and tell him to dip in the river Jordan. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. <laughs> well, the tension is certainly ratcheting up here. <laughs> I mean, Naaman is angry to the point 
of absolute fury. Who does this little upstart Elisha think he is? And doesn't he know how important I am? What does he send out? What is going on? Why is this happening to me? Um, He was expecting something different. He was expecting something bigger. He had a penchant for the, for the theatrical, right? Uh, I mean, he would have thought, I think, that if dancing girls had to come out, you know, and there was this fire, and then, you know, the guru came out dressed in robes with a healing poultice and, and held it up high and, and said a magic, you know, like a abracadabra or whatever, and then put that on him. Naaman would have gone with that. But this is not what Naaman had expected, it says in verse 11, it says, Naaman was furious. Right. I mean, Naaman was like white with anger, that means. He wanted this bloke for breakfast. You've got to understand, this man's power, and he's not used to being treated like this. It says he went away. Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his Lord and wave his hand. You know, there's a magic wand and it's a magic potions and some stuff. What is this? <laughs> this river Jordan. <laughs> he says, are there not Abner and uh, Phopah, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't go and wash in them and be clean. So he turned and now he's going away in an absolute rage you don't want to get (laughs) the head of your enemy's army in an absolute rage but that's what's happened and so everybody watching this is on tender hooks because everybody's thinking that's it we're doomed now (laughs) Syria is going to wipe us off the map we only exist by their good grace and now we've gone and offended them to the nth degree One of his servants, one of the entourage, one of his underlings plucks up some incredible courage in the story and says, my father, if the prophet had told you to go and do something great, would you not have done it? How much more when he says, go wash and clean? If he told you to go and slay a dragon, would you have done it? (laughs) If he told you to go and bring back some water from the glaciers of the Himalayas, wouldn't you have done it? If he told you to go and pluck an eyebrow hair from a yak in China, would have you done it? (laughs) Of course you would have. But he says, go and dip in that little river down the road a little bit, that filthy thing they call the Jordan. And you're angry, and I understand you being angry. But you would have told, you would have done what he told you to do had it been something, you know, kind of equivalent to your status. So no one's watching. What have you got to lose? And fortunately for that man, fortunately for the courage of that servant, he convinced Naaman to go and do that, do the very thing that the servant of the prophet had told him to do. So he went and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And it says this, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child and he was clean. He found his miracle. We're going to get to just the, uh, the detail around this in a minute, but he found his miracle. It wasn't what he was expecting. It didn't unfold as he had imagined it to unfold, but it landed where he hoped that indeed it would land. And so he returns to the man of God. 
and all of his age, his whole entourage, back they go. And he came and stood before him. So now he's got up off his prophet's chair or whatever it was before and he's come out and he's, he's laid eyes on Naaman now. He's actually come out and had a conversation with him. He said, and Naaman says to, um, to Elijah, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take the gifts from your servant. This is incredible at a number of levels. Uh, he went there for a miracle. He came away having found God. Did you see that? So it wasn't just the miracle he got, but there was something on top of the miracle that he never would have established. He, he never would have been able to have comprehended any other way. And, and what we can derive from that, what we can take away from that, I believe, is this. Is that whenever you commit an act of obedience, God is always up to so much more than you can ever imagine. That there's always something else on the other side of that act of obedience than what you're expecting or that what you know. But Naaman didn't get the explanation, but he did get the experience. He did get the miracle. So uh, he, he's got his life back and he's a wealthy man. He wants to pay. He wants to give his clothing and his gold and his silver and all the stuff that he brought with him. In fact, he wants to take the show on the road. Um, he, he, wants to, he wants the whole world to know that this God cures leprosy. There's le- lepers everywhere. Come on, um, Elisha, I can make you famous. You know, hop in my chariot and I'll make, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do big posters and we'll do big healing rallies all through Syria and Israel. And will everybody, we can have a great, this, we can leverage this for great glory. Let's do it. And uh, Elisha seems nowhere in his thinking. What happened, it says, if you will not, said Naaman, because he said, no, I'm not going to go. He says, please let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. In verse 17, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings or sacrifice to any other God but to your Lord. And right there, I don't know if you saw that, but right there is the problem right now in the Middle East. You see, he wanted to take soil with him because in this culture, in this understanding, God and the earth can't be separated. He wanted to take God with him. And how is he taking God with him? He's taking God with him by putting the dirt onto the chariots or onto the mules and then taking it back to Syria. So that, that's why there's no, no solving what's going on right now in the Middle East because it's not just about a two-state solution. It's about my God lives on this soil. I can't let you be here because my God is here. So this, this, this is 2,800 years old, folks. This just didn't happen in the last couple of weeks. This has been going on for, uh, for millennia, folks. Uh, and, and this is where it's come from. You just had an insight into the Middle Eastern mind right there. But I want, to stroke, I want to show you um, a verse from the teachings of Jesus that I find incredibly illumining in light of the story that we've just looked at. And it says this, um, Jesus speaking in John 14, 21. He says, and he who has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And, and look, at this, look at these last few words. And manifest myself to him. Did you see that? That's exactly what happened to Naaman, wasn't it? 
when Naaman obeyed what the prophet asked him to do, not only did he find a miracle, but he found a revelation of God that he had never had before. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen, not just to Naaman, but to you. You see, it's not about what, it's actually about who. It's not about what you're asked to do, it's about who asks you to do it. And what you need to understand, folks, is when God asks you to do something, he's not just He's not just prepping you for a miracle, right? Because whatever God extracts from you, he always gives back pressed down, shaken together, multiplied over back into your life, right? God's not interested in taking anything from you. God's actually interested in bringing everything for you. But as he, as he leads you down a pathway of obedience, he's leading you down a pathway of revelation of who God is. It's not just about squeezing life out of you and saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. You've got to start doing this even though I don't want to. It is on the other side of obedience that Naaman found his miracle and found a fresh and a new and a dimension of God. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight that that's exactly where your miracle is too. Not only the thing that you're believing for, but a whole fresh understanding and a deeper walk and revelation of who God is. So here's the question. Um, where does the tension lie right now in your life? Right now, what, God, what has God got his finger on? Because my sneaking suspicion is that God's got his finger on a whole bunch of stuff right now in your life. And I wonder, even as I say that, whether you can define it, if, if, it, if it's clear for you. Because I can assure you that your obedience to whatever that is will take you to a whole new revelation of living. Not only will things fall off you that were holding you back like leprosy or whatever, sin or whatever, but you'll see God clearer and brighter and fresher than you've ever seen before. Remember, those who have my commandments, right? So those who have something from him that he's asking of you, and those who do that are loved by me, and I'm going to reveal myself to them. That was the promise that Jesus gave to everybody in the Gospel of John. That was the exact experience of Naaman in that story in the Old Testament. Now, what is it? <laughs> Maybe God's saying to you, hey, you, we, we heard earlier about generosity. Maybe God's saying to you, you need to be more generous. You need to step up to the plate in terms of the way you live your life and, and you're holding stuff too close to your chest. You're, it's more, you're more worried about yourself than others and you need to start giving. Is God placed his finger on something good in your life and said hey you know that thing you got to give that away you got to give that to someone you got to sell that what you got to you got to deal with that take that out of your life yeah, well I don't want to tell me why God tell me why <laughs> give me give me an explanation maybe God's saying to you, you know that relationship you're in right now that's not doing you any good whatsoever I know you don't want to break it but you have to but why God we're just friends we're good friends <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that person I want an explanation what if God is God and you're not? Just a thought for you. <laughs> what, what, what if God is exacting something from you? He says, no, no, you've got to break that relationship. What I'm saying to you is this. 
You can see that from the angle of, well, God, tell me why, God. You know, give me reasons, God, why I don't want to, I don't want to. Or you can, you can see, wow, I now have the command of God. If I, I obey that, I'm going to get a revelation of God like I've never had before. This is a pathway into a new miracle way of life. You can see it like that because that's what it is. That's what it is. See, maybe God's saying to you, you need to stay in that relationship. Maybe you got to a point and you're, you know, you're thinking, you got your eyes on something else and you're wanting to break out of that relationship. And God's saying, no, 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 you got to stay in that relationship. I put you in that relationship. That relationship's in accordance with my will for your life. You stay where you are. But I don't want to. <laughs> I don't care. I'm telling you it's best for you. <laughs> Tell me why. Explain. I'm not allowed to do this and I'm not allowed to do that. And I don't like this. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Because I know better than you, God. Oh, dear God. You, you know, sometimes you've just got to obey. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you've just got to recognize, I'm not God and he is God. And so I'm going to work off that, off that foundation. Maybe God's saying to you, you need to forgive that person. I don't want to forgive them. They've hurt me too deeply. I, I don't want to let it go. Uh, it's actually a comfort for me now. I, I, I've got a, a good reason to be gnarly and, and, and miserable and, <laughs> and angry because of what happened to me. And you can carry that on. God's saying to you, let it go, let it go. And you say, I, don't want, I, really don't want, I want to hang on to it. And, and I, I, look, some of you here, you're in this conversation with God as if somehow God's like a parent and you're arguing with him saying, I don't want to do it. He says, yes, you do. And, and it's kind of like, well, God's just here and I'm here. No, 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 folks. God is God and you're not. <laughs> and when you have a direction from God and when God's placed his finger on your life, I, I want to bring you back to those words of Jesus again. Where Jesus says, hey, he who has my command, he who has that direction, he, he, he who has my will, you do that, I will love him and manifest myself to him. And when he manifests himself to you, the miracle working power comes with it, you see. When he comes into your life, you go, wow, there is God like I've never seen him before. Stuff changes in your world. Just like it did in the life of Naaman. If you're saying, well, I'm happy to obey. I just want an explanation <laughs> because I'm an educated, intelligent human being and I've been able to climb many hills and, 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 and solve many problems. And You're a sophisticated fool, folks. <laughs> because somehow you're aligning your intelligence with the creator of the universe. Just think about that for a minute. The one who said, let there be light, and there was no argument. There was no sense, well, I don't want to be light. Well, it was, it was just light. <laughs> you know, the, the one who just proclaimed the universe into existence. That's who God is. And God's put his finger on your life and you're arguing with him? Seriously? The very fact that God's put his finger on your life, you should be down on your knees saying, thank you, God, for thinking about me. Thank you, God, that you want something from me. Thank you, God, that we're interacting together. <laughs> because whenever that happens, it's always an exciting moment. It's always a gateway 
into something fresh, to something new, to a revelation of God and to a miracle in your life that you've never had before.